Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Yale Press Podcast. My name is Michael Hoke. Today I'm joined by David Satter, a journalist, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and a fellow at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. He's written about Russia for nearly four decades, and his latest book is The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep, Russia's Road to Terror and Dictatorship Under Yeltsin and Putin. David, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you. I'm very glad to be with you. So let's go back in time a bit to the end of 1999. Uh, Boris Yeltsin is supposed to leave office the next year with elections in June of 2000. His heir apparent, so to speak, is, of course, Vladimir Putin. Both of them are suffering from abysmal approval ratings, and then a series of apartment bombings changed all that. What happened there? Well, uh, it looked for sure like there would be a change in in the regime, and uh, it was widely expected that uh, Yeltsin would face uh, some type of criminal prosecution for the pillaging of the country during the 1990s, during the period of privatization. Uh, It was also widely expected that there would be a revision in the results of privatization, Uh, We have to remember that uh, under the Soviet Union, all property was state-owned. So the entire country was, in effect, carved up and and, uh, distributed to private individuals during this period. And it was massive. The process was massively corrupt and widely resented by a country which, on the whole, was plunged into poverty during these years. So it was a very tense time, and uh, suddenly apartment buildings began to be blown up in the middle of the night, and no one was sure who had done it. Uh, The authorities blamed the bombings on Chechens. Uh, They said that there was a Chechen trail. It was a very odd way of putting it, a Chechen trail, not proof, but some type of trail, but that was enough to mobilize the population against the Chechens, who, by the way, denied they had anything to do with the apartment bombings and prepare the country for a new war in Chechnya. As the war progressed, uh, and it was seen widely as a war of vengeance, a war of, 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 of retaliation, and thus was very popular uh, among Russians, uh, the approval rating of Vladimir Putin, who had been completely unknown, a former head of the FSB, began to rise. It had started at only 2%, which m- mirrored... Uh, Yeltsin's abysmal approval ratings. But as uh, each day brought reports of success in the war, uh, Putin uh, emerged as the leading candidate to succeed Yeltsin as president. And people tended to forget that he was, in fact, Yeltsin's hand-picked successor. He had been made, he had been elevated to the position of prime minister on the eve of the bombings. Specifically, I think, so that he could take charge of the subsequent invasion and enhance his popularity with the help of a war. And as we know, he was elected president. Now, all of this would have been extremely successful if it had not been for one mistake. That was that a bomb that was placed in in the basement of a building in Ryazan, a city southeast of Moscow, Uh, was discovered by watchful residents, and the people who put the bomb in the basement were caught. They turned out to be not Chechens, but agents of the FSB, the Federal Security Service, which is the 
successor to the KGB in Russia. Uh, the head of the FSB in response to this said that, uh, yes, KGB agents did place a bomb uh, or in the building uh, in Riazan, but it was a, a an imitation bomb. It consisted of nothing but sugar, and what was taking place was just a training exercise. <laughs> uh, this was highly implausible, but uh, in the confusion of fast-moving events, people tended to forget what happened in Riazan. Either that or they were too intimidated to pose the question. And as the war uh, proceeded successfully uh, and with elections uh, you know, just, just, just weeks away, uh, there was no one really to, to force an answer to the question of who put the bomb in the basement in Riazan. And as a result, uh, Putin was elected Russia's uh, new president. And his first act in office was to uh, issue a, a blanket pardon to Yeltsin for any crimes committed while he was in office and announced that the division of property, which was the result of the privatization of the 1990s, would not be challenged. Hmm. And, it, and, and everything that had been stolen would stay stolen. And that's the, in a nutshell, what uh, uh, what took place during that very mysterious period between September 1999 and uh, the end of April uh, 2000, when it became clear that not only would Yeltsin not be punished for crimes committed while he was in office, but that the system that he put in place would not be challenged. And is this something that, in hindsight, people are are aware of, and they they think, "Oh, how did we let this happen?" Or or was it one of those things that you know the the explanation is given, and that's good enough, and we're going to move forward? The explanation was given. Uh, people did want to move forward, but they never forgot. Mm-hmm. And to this day, uh, there's a a widespread feeling in Russia that uh, the FSB was responsible for bombing those buildings. But the tradition in Russia of subservience to the government is such that people are are loath to challenge it. They understand that it's a fundamental challenge to the regime to raise this issue. Uh, The regime depicts itself as acting on behalf of the Russian people. evidence that in fact they were willing to come to they came to power as the result of an act of terror carried out against their own people that would seriously uh challenge the legitimacy of the regime and in the long run undermine their hold on power uh for that reason people instinctively understand how sensitive the whole question is and they shy away from it it's also tragic to say that many russians uh, probably would have support the regime even if they knew that it was true, even if they were convinced and had been shown that it was true that the regime blew up those buildings in order to uh, uh, organize, in effect, an, uh, a, a coup d'etat within the system. The, um, the reality of, of, of Russian life and Russian traditions and the inheritance of communism is that Russian people 
almost take it for granted that their leaders carry out murderous acts in order to stay in power. And although, if asked, they may disapprove of those acts, uh, at the same time, they're likely to, to think or even to say that all political leaders behave this way. This is just typical of, of, of what uh, leaders are ready to do when their power is at stake. And it's this, this very distorted notion of the prerogatives of leaders versus the rights of, 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 of ordinary citizens, including their right to their own lives, that uh, creates a, a favorable environment for carrying out these kinds of acts. So where does this you know, fatalistic sort of uh, view of the government come from? Well, we have to understand the traditions in Russia. Uh, this is a country which has never spared the lives of its citizens. And this was true in Tsarist times. Peter the Great built St. Petersburg on a swamp uh, on the bones of, of untold numbers of peasants. The huge uh, slave labor projects of, Stalin, of the Stalin era, Stalin era echoed these earlier mass sacrifices. This is a country uh, which experienced the Great Terror, in which, uh, in the course of, of, of a little over a year, uh, a million people were arrested and taken out and shot. Uh, so the fear that has been engendered by uh, generations of ruthless governments and the tendency of the people themselves to think in terms of some great political goal always justifying sacrifices, including the sacrifices of ordinary people, all that comes together to create a situation in which uh, crimes like this are not an anomaly. Uh, they really are the kind of thing that uh, one can expect in Russia, that they've taken place in the past, and without a change, they're going to take place in the future. And do you think, are there any signs that that change is coming or that people want it to come? Um, is this something that is moving towards any sort of conclusion at this point? Well, the regime is doing everything possible to drive out the most creative, liberal-minded, sophisticated, and humane and productive members of the society. Unprecedented numbers of, of Russians are uh, leaving the country and seeking to make their lives and fortunes abroad. This, of course, diminishes the number of people inside the country who are willing to work for change. But the, the reality is that Russia is changing in very fundamental ways uh, regardless. The middle class is growing. Russians are more connected to the outside world than in the past. The Internet is binding everyone to a certain extent. Uh, and uh, the way of life that is being imposed upon Russia by the Putin regime, uh, which is a KGB regime, but it's also characterized by corruption, nepotism, uh, and, uh, and all manner of discrimination, uh, is uh, inappropriate. It's not, uh, it doesn't create a context in which those people who have the most to offer Russian society are able to realize their talents. 
And sooner or later, as the regime degenerates and the number of politically conscious people increases, some type of collision, I think, is inevitable. And the U.S. and Russia obviously have a, a complicated relationship. Um, you know, there's the, the infamous restart um, and, and things like that. How, how does Russia view the U.S. now, um, you know, especially with the fact that there are more opportunities here to connect, whether that's through the Internet or, or with media, things like that? Is this, is this an adversarial relationship or are there, are there opportunities here to work together? Well, Russians are being uh, uh, assaulted with anti-American propaganda on, on the state-controlled television, which is the principal means of communicating uh, in the country. Uh, Russians get their news overwhelmingly from television, not from other sources. Mm-hmm. And, in, and the first thing that Putin did when he came to power was to make sure that he had taken control of the independent television networks. So now national television is completely in the hands of the regime. And when national television is talking to you, it's the regime that's talking to you. Uh, but the, uh, the irony of it all is that uh, you know, Russians are, are, by their nature, quite friendly to the West and friendly to Americans. Uh, they're being uh, propagandized uh, and that propaganda is having some effect in part because there is uh, resentment over the loss of superpower status. But the artificial, if artificiality of that propaganda is also perceived by many people. And under the right circumstances, it will be exposed. Uh, for the moment, uh, Russians uh, have been able to compensate for their doubts uh, with uh, the assurance that living standards are getting better. But in fact, as a result of uh, U.S. sanctions, as a result of the fall in the price of energy, particularly oil, and and also certain structural problems, because during the years of very high oil prices, very little was done to improve the country's infrastructure. Uh, the, 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 The country is, to a certain extent, facing many years of of economic stagnation or even decline, Mm. that's going to put pressure on the regime and it's going to uh, exacerbate the the fault lines in the society. And one of those fault lines is definitely the fact that uh, Russians accept the truth that's presented to them on state-controlled television, but they accept it conditionally. And... uh, are capable of changing their views uh, if a more convincing picture of reality is made available to them. And how how do you think that um, that picture of reality would get through? Is there is there an obvious way that that could happen? Uh, there are a number of ways. I mean, first of all, uh, the West ha- you know, has made some some efforts uh, in that direction, but what what really counts is uh, the reality of the situation inside Russia itself. There was a case where two women, uh, two doctors, a mother and a daughter, were killed uh, during the morning rush hour in uh, Moscow. A car driven by an executive of Luke Oil, which is one of the big state-run oil companies, Mm -hmm. uh, 
drove into oncoming traffic in order to you know to, to you know to jump a line of cars and hit hit the car driven by these two women head on uh the entire country erupted uh in in rage at least on the internet uh when when the official investigation concluded that the women were at fault <laughs> but what was significant here uh, was the extent of the anger, which uh, which exists uh, almost on the part of every ordinary citizen in regard to those who are privileged and have no regard for other people's lives. Uh, the time, the year was 2010. Uh, the population at that time was still passive, but. Uh, under other circumstances, for example, 2011, after the parliamentary elections were falsified, 100,000 people took to the streets. So hmm. we know that it is possible, that protest is possible. And were something to happen, like what happened to those two women, uh, under conditions in which the regime was under strain, who knows what the popular reaction would be? Would it remain uh, restricted to the Internet? Not necessarily. And there's also the example of Ukraine. Uh, time will tell. But, uh, but surely uh, the regime uh, is, is not uh, invulnerable, particularly because it, it creates a situation in which abuses like the one in which uh, those two women were involved uh, are just built into the in, into the nature of the situation. People who have stolen money, who have unaccountable, who are uh, 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 wealth, uh, and who consider themselves to be literally a, a category apart from ordinary human beings, with no with no limitations on their behavior, uh, they will. Uh, they will commit crimes. They will demonstrate uh, the perversity of their situation. And at some point in the future, they'll provoke a reaction. Do you see any parallels um, between that sort of you know, potential for uprising against the system as you know, what's happening here in the U.S. on a different scale with the candidacy of somebody like Donald Trump or the candidacy of somebody like Bernie Sanders, where people are sort of railing against what they perceive to be the machine of politics. Do you, do you see some parallels there? Uh, well, they're only insofar as uh, when people feel that they aren't getting a fair deal, uh, they, um, they're capable of, of, of organizing against it and um we you know in this country we have of course uh, democratic institutions and that protest uh takes place uh within a democratic context mm -hmm. uh in russia uh it would immediately take the form of a confrontation between the people and the regime and there are no mechanisms for really resolving it Either the regime would resort to suppression, which uh, is uh, very much in their in their tradition, or uh, the people would be 
sufficiently well organized to prevail and overthrow the regime, as happened in in Ukraine. Uh, the uh, it's not a question of organizing in order to vote in elections, and uh, if it were, Russia would not have the problems it has today. Now, going back to what you were talking about earlier. Um, with this propaganda against the United States that that people are sort of bombarded with in Russia. It's sort of funny to think back to the Cold War and this sort of Hollywood propaganda that even the United States had going. You know, the Russians were always the bad guys uh, and and that sort of thing. Um, Are there there some foreign policies uh, or, you know, domestic policies that Russia has had over the years that that may have been misunderstood or mischaracterized by Americans unfairly? Well, uh, if, we're, if, are we, if we're talking about post-communist Russia, tw- which is now 25 years old, mm-hmm. uh, the country that emerged from the breakup of the Soviet Union, we uh, have had actually relatively little in the way of foreign policy confrontations. Um, The uh, Russians have objected to the expansion of NATO, but NATO was expanded uh, in response to the application uh, to the organization that was made by prospective member countries. Uh, the the situation in Ukraine really didn't involve the United States uh, very much, although Russian propaganda is claiming that the uh, the overthrow of, Yan- of Viktor Yanukovych, the former Ukrainian president, was orchestrated by the CIA. In reality, I was there. It was a popular uprising against a very corrupt regime. Mm-hmm. It was a kind of anti-criminal re- uh, revolution. So uh, the, U- the U.S., uh, in point of fact, had very little to do with it. Uh, I think that Russian propaganda is seeking to disguise the uh, resistance to kleptocracy, the resistance to mass theft, uh, as and misrepresented as something that was, is, is not based on legitimate motives, but rather is instigated by a foreign power. But there's no evidence that I'm aware of that supports that point of view. And I think that, uh, in general, the, the West uh, is useful uh, to Russia because... Uh, the leaders of the country need an enemy, and the West is a very convenient enemy for a Russian leader. Uh, it makes it possible for him to organize uh, society and consolidate society uh, in his own interests and to distract people's attention from, the, from, from what is really going on. So, I mean, I know that, that various... Uh, uh, individuals make arguments that Russia behaves badly because we, the West, drove them to it. But in fact, Russia needs enemies. 
uh, and is always looking for a pretext to start a conflict uh, because nothing uh, is better for the present rulers of Russia than to seem to be than to seem to be defending the country against pressure from the West, regardless of the merits of the case. And so. That sort of leads us to Syria and Ukraine. Um, what do you see as Russia's endgame in, in either of those conflicts? Well, in the case of Ukraine, it was clearly uh, to sabotage uh, the the new Ukrainian government and to bring Russia back into the, I'm sorry, to bring Ukraine back into the Russian sphere of influence. Uh, in Syria, I think the Russians intervened in part because things were not going as planned in Ukraine, and they needed something else to distract the attention of the population. The, the Russian leaders use war as a means of consolidating their power, so they're not necessarily hesitant to uh, resort to armed force. And what do you see then as how does russia view themselves in the in the global community what is what do they see their place as being well uh russia has the russian leaders have kind of expressed this that they feel that they should uh, that the former the boundaries of the former soviet union are their sphere of influence mm-hmm. and uh that is where uh their writ uh, should apply, and no one has the right to interfere. Uh, now, of course, this uh, this characterization of the rest of of the former Soviet Union as Russia's backyard is uh, uh, is made without any concern for what the opinion uh, might be of the other former Soviet republics, whether they want to be. Uh, thought to be part of Russia's backyard, whether they uh, agree to be part of Russia's sphere of influence, to be subordinated to Russia. Uh, in fact, the overwhelming majority of them do not agree. And uh, But this is not taken fully into account by Western policymakers. All right. Well, David, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. The book is The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep, and it's available in bookstores. That does it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at www.yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. Talk to you next time.